Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Hey guys. Hey everybody. Welcome back to our amazing podcast. If you're here, <laughs> then you're one of four billion people that listens to this podcast. Congratulations. And if you just happen to be someone with a PR firm, just wanted to let you know there's 4 billion people currently subscribed to us right now. I don't know if you know a lot right. about population, but that's like probably half of the earth. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say that we have 4 billion listeners minus 3.6 billion, and that is the number we are working with. <laughs> Alyssa's very confused. Don't, you know what? Don't worry about her. Just do whatever you think is right in your heart. Right. Yeah. You know what? Maybe we can um, just pretend to be more, you know, fake it till you make it. Right. 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 Yeah. Number 174 in the U.S. What other accolades do you need? None. Yeah. None. Not at all. I mean, at this rate, we're going to be 69 in the U.S. by next year. Yeah. Correct. Nut. Nut. The nut button is making a resurgence. And you may remember last week we had a contest. We said, if you remember when we started doing our weird cadence on the intro, mm-hmm. you would get a, your very own original piece of defective merch. Well, guess what? We have a winner. It is peaky.jpg. That's P-I-K-I dot J-P-G. Is that peaky.jpg? Like a Pikachu picture? Yeah. <laughs> yep amazing (laughs) amazing amazing i wanted to say if you're one of those people who commented on a post that was earlier or somewhere else before the photo dump went up and you wrote in your comment like hey the photo dump wasn't up yet so i commented on this and so i'm technically first so sorry but the official rules when we were listening back we said when the photo dump is put up then comment on that so Better luck next time. There's going to be a next time because we have lots of defective merch. Yes, definitely. So if you guys can think of something else, some other giveaway we can do, just let us know. Uh, If not, I'm sure next episode we'll already have a giveaway. Right. But speaking, speaking of our audience, Natalia, do you have any donors you'd like to shout out today? I sure do. I have for the month of December. Christian M, Brielle S, and Maya L. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And I'm a little bit behind on mine. I finally just uh, tabulated all of my donations for end of November through December. So I'm going to shout you guys all out here. Maya L, Samantha P, Lauren L, Madison F, Ephraim P, Justin M, Jonna H, Audra T, Rebecca H, Charlotte D, Johnny P, Emmy, Katie, Casilda from Australia, Rebecca H. and Alec and Joey. Thank you guys so much. And if you want to donate to us, you can Venmo at DogMomUSA or at NatStron. Or you can go to our Kofi account by going to letsgethaunted.com, clicking on the menu bar, and then there's a giant button that says donate, which will take you to our Kofi account. Or Natalia, where can they donate to you? You can go to my PayPal, which is paypal.me slash NatStron or Cash App username the dollar sign and then Natalia Strawn. So it's at dollar sign Natalia Strawn or my Venmo at Nat Strawn. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Our podcast runs 100% on your donations and merch sales. Mm -hmm. And so we really, really appreciate everyone who takes time out of their haunted ass days to give us 69 cents or $4.20 
We really appreciate it. Yep. If you want to donate 69 cents, you can do that via Venmo, just so you know. I don't think Kofi allows you to, and I know for sure PayPal does not because they don't allow anything un- under a dollar. But you can always Venmo us. Thank you, guys. Yeah. So, Alyssa, we got to get right to this meth lab story. The people, it's all they want. Oh, right. <laughs> There's been d- major developments in this story there has so if you guys don't know what we're talking about there's no time to explain go to last episode listen to the first 20 minutes have a ball right okay so (laughs) this is the update for last week's episode intro i was driving the other day noticed something and i immediately texted natalia so i am going to send natalia a video right now that she's already seen because i sent it to her immediately but i want you to just look at it natalia and illustrate it to our audience okay please put this on the instagram yeah that's fine, okay yeah. Alyssa is showing me a what looks like a city that's literally on fire <laughs> it's a video of a city that's literally on fire i'm pressing play right now yeah this is huge flames we're looking at like literally 150 foot flames right there happening there's like a billowing yeah. smoke going up into the sky this fire looks like it's at least a mile or half a mile wide it's a straight up forest fire correct it is pretty fucking insane so what does this have to do with the meth lab guy well wouldn't you know it this fire broke out in the exact area that i found the guy cooking meth that i reported to the police and they did nothing about so of course i have no proof that the meth guy started the fire i don't want to get sued for slander Uh, i'm sure he's an upstanding citizen that listens to this podcast and is really concerned what meth guy llc is gonna take us out exactly i don't want that so i will say they have not yet officially ruled what the cause of the fire is but it's uh literally right in the spot where i found the meth lab guy and just like further like irritating me they wouldn't let any of us into the farm into that like ranch any of us that were were scheduled to work there because it took them three days to like extinguish all of it and there's still I think there's still hot spots and so when I was finally able to go out there it it was in the protected wetlands yes it was literally in the protected wetlands okay I'm like I'm not saying it's a conspiracy but what I am saying is that on Twitter the official Twitter account for the Ventura County Fire Department tweeted like a week ago they tweeted oh in the process of putting out the perkin fire you know no word on on what started the fire and that was the last update they ever gave and i'm like all right well you can look into your police reports Mm -hmm. um and look and see if anyone had complained about any unusual activity in there and see what happens (sighs) and so okay so the last part of the story so when we were finally allowed back into that ranch I was walking around the perimeter to see like if any damage had been done from the flames and luckily no uh, because the there's like a buffer of dirt between the river bottom and the ranch but the fire department had cut through the newly repaired fences because remember how I said the meth yeah. guy was stealing things and cutting through the fences right well the fire department cut through all those fences so that they could use the farm's water to put out the fire mm. which by the way like they they don't reimburse you for that so like they cut through stuff and they cause property damage and they don't like pay you back for that and they also like don't pay you back for the water they used and one of them drove into the middle of the field somehow by accident and then got stuck so you can see like all these tire tracks just destroyed crops and then like all these like footprints of people trying to pull the guy out 
of the ranch. Oh my God. So, I mean, I guess, you know, I get it. Your number one priority put out the fire. I'm on board with that. I am just annoyed because, like, I reported this problem, like, literally a week before it happened. Right. This could have all been avoided if they would have just done an airstrike on this meth lab. <laughs> well, no, I guess that would have started a fire probably yeah that would have started a fire no what they should have done is they should have just gone out there and been like hey are you cooking meth that's illegal um and if they didn't feel like arresting him that's fine but like get him out of the protected wetland you know what i mean like i don't know i'm mad really at this understand. guy like i know you're very good at trying like you doing your hr thing where you like unemotional towards like presenting a problem that's like clearly designed to piss people off at a meth man but i'm yeah. like very <laughs> angry at this meth man because he was stealing your stuff he's living on protected wetlands he's making meth i mean but then the other half of me this is my gemini side it's like maybe he's living his best life you know yeah maybe he's living his best life allegedly starting a wetland fire that had flames up to 150 feet that took three days to extinguish and caused more property damage yeah you know you know just never know did you go down and look at the meth thing was it still there or is it burned up they wouldn't let me um i actually the night that it was going on i tried to drive over to the farm because i knew that it was close by that ranch but i wasn't sure if it was like actually that ranch or if it was like just nearby because there's a golf course there and i was like maybe the golf course like blew up or something mm -hmm. and so i was trying to drive over and they had the whole thing blocked off and the cop was very sassy which i understand times of emergency but i was like hey i like filed a police report about something and the ranch i work on is right there and so i just want to know like is the ranch on fire and the guy's like oh i can't give you that information i was like okay well he literally can't because he just doesn't know <laughs> yeah exactly and i was like well can i like go there because, like, I have stuff there and, like, I just want to make sure that everything is chill. And he was like, no, you can't. So, I don't know. I wasn't able to go down there. And then the day that I was finally able to get on the ranch, they had tons of, like, firefighters in the river bottom. So, you couldn't go walk into the area. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, that's the update, you guys. Well, part of you has to feel kind of good, right? Like, I told you so. Yeah. You know, like I told yeah. you, police, like I was the one who knew this would be a problem and I was not taken seriously. And now look what's happened. It's just as I suspected. Well, they, they did report that luckily there were no injuries and no deaths. So if anybody was in the river bottom when it started, they got out safely, which is the most important. No firefighters or police were hurt or whatever. But it's just like, did that guy like I'm so curious. Did that guy have enough time? Did he see the fire starting? And then was just like, whoop, going to get all of my meth stuff and just like bounce quickly before this turns I mean, into a thing and I get caught. Yeah, probably. Like he's invested so much money and time into that product. He's not just going to like let it go up in flames, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's not just going to like leave it there. That's so I'm wondering like, where's the new meth lab? Is there going to be any evidence? Oh, Where, well, one, where's the new meth lab? And two, is there any evidence there or like, well, you took pictures because I remember you sent me a photo of like a shanty thing that I immediately said that was a crackhead's house. And you were like, no, yeah, it's actually for meth house. Crackhead's offensive term. Yeah. You can't <laughs> use that. This is a meth <laughs> creating facility. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Well, I gave all that info to the police when I filed my report. So they have all those photos so they can figure out what they want to do with it. I think the only 
thing left to do is restore the balance by going and taking a shit on his meth house front door (laughs) because one time someone who I believe to be someone who partakes in meth and or crack (laughs) came and left. I know. I, I remember this story. A giant shit on my front fucking porch and scarred me for life. And I don't. You made eye contact with him while his ass was out and he was shitting. I think that that would scar anyone. I could see the veins in his eyes, like from him pushing. <laughs> it was a horrible. It was horrible. Like every time I tell that story, I just relive it. Like right now, I'm like imagining the man. You know what? The next fucking painting I make will literally just be that. Like it'll be a man crouching, looking over his shoulder, and like the pure pain and shock and frustration. That he's experiencing (laughs) so much emotion. The anger. Why are you interrupting me? I chose your front porch for a reason. Right. How dare you open your front door yeah. and make eye contact with me? It's It was like this perfect little oasis with, you know, the door open. And it's like, he was just like, this right. is a beautiful concrete garden. Someone's clearly put a lot of effort into this with the succulents. And now I'm going to defile this. Exactly. If you guys don't know what we're talking about... <laughs> What episode is that? It would have been around the time that you were moving out. February or March, if you guys want to go back, listen to all those intros and find it. I mean, it it was a good story. Definitely. (laughs) There's some haunted shit happening in our lives at all times. Amazing. 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 Well, thank you for letting me use our intro to give you that update. And if the police... We all needed to know. Oh, I got a sweet DM from... um, one of our listeners, she w- she lives in Ventura County, and she was like, hey, I just wanted to like make sure you're okay because I was listening to the intro of your last episode, and you talked about like a river bottom with a guy cooking meth, and then I just saw that like this crazy fire broke out in the river bottom, and so mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure that you're okay. I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's so really nice. nice. Like People are paying attention. Yeah, I'm fine, and I'm no longer going to be working on that ranch because of this fire. So now I like don't care if people know where it was. What an interesting job Alyssa works. You know, one day she sent me a picture (laughs) of like, what do you even call it? It was like literally a farm. Like, you know, when you drive by like that, like piece of, I'm going to talk about this from the perspective of someone who doesn't work on a farm. Okay. You know, when you're on the highway and you drive by like a piece of flat dirt that has like a bunch of lines in it and you know that that's a farm. Uh, I what do you call that I don't know everyone knows what I'm talking about it's called furrows they were bedding up so it was a it was a tractor that was bedding up furrows okay so Alyssa sends me a picture of that and I was like cool do you get to drive the tractor and she was like yeah I'm welding this week also I drive the tractor every fucking day well she didn't say it like that no I didn't say that but that's how I pictured her saying (laughs) and and then I was like oh that's really cool because I just thought like I just pictured Alyssa like sitting in an office like angry at a desk just like having to go through a bunch of paperwork (laughs) and like hire and fire people but the fact that you're getting to weld and drive tractors and discover and talk to meth lab people I mean your job is super exciting I would have never guessed if you do HR and manual labor you're in charge of safety and so if you're in charge of safety you kind of have to know what everyone's jobs are and how to perform them otherwise how can you effectively keep people safe so it's kind of like nobody's going to have respect for you and listen to to your safety trainings if you don't know how to do their job oh wow yeah wow so you got to make sure that you know how to do their job 
you go out there, you job shadow, you do work with them. Do you wear a hard hat? Um, it depends on what kind of work we're doing. We used to have to um, work on this ranch that was by a golf course <laughs> and a, a different golf course than the one from the meth story. And that golf course, the people were so fucking drunk all the time. They refused to put up a net barrier. And so they would just hit golf balls into the field all the time. And then one time somebody got hit with a golf ball. So anytime we were ever like working on that like piece of land, we'd have to wear hard hats. Wow. Just in case golf balls came flying. Comment below on anything that you have in front of you <laughs> if you're shocked right now that Alyssa has a job where she wears a hard hat because I would have never known. I learn more and more about my co-host every time we speak to each other. It's really like a beautiful relationship where you know so much yet you know so little. It's I really think that's just... Um you know, uh, a microcosm, an allegory, I don't know the word I'm looking for, for um, for friendship and human interaction. You may think you know everything about someone, but deep down, they're just cultivating meth <laughs> in a river bottom. So <laughs> do you really know anyone? That was his legacy. He created a wildfire that was literally named after, not him, but he created a wildfire that, that had a name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's a lot. Yeah. Meth man, I hope you've learned your lesson. I hope that you are now safely manufacturing meth in Portland where it is legal to do so. And I hope you're in a sterile environment and that you are staying far away from protected wetlands and far away from me, to be quite honest <laughs> with you. What a beautiful story. So do you think this is like... Do you think this is the happy ending to a story other than the wetlands? Yeah, I mean, it's probably best case scenario that this happened now instead of having it happen, I don't know, during like a super dry part of the year. At least it's not as dry in December as it normally is. Right. But they still should have fucking listened to me. I'm telling you, everyone just needs to listen to me. That's the end of, <laughs> that's the end of, that's the end of this intro. Fucking listen to me. You guys heard it here first. You have to listen to yeah. Alyssa. Otherwise, bad things happen. That's right. That's true. All right. <laughs> well, Natalia, I'm excited to hear your story today. Well, I'm excited to tell it to you. Should we just get right into that? Yeah, I think so. <sighs> All right. I need you to buckle the fuck up because okay. this is going to, I think, unravel a part of you specifically, Alyssa, <laughs> psychologically, uh -oh. just because uh -oh. this story combines so many of your fears that I know for a fact you have. Oh, God. Okay, let me buckle up. I'm wearing a robe right now because it's freezing in my house. So let me just buckle up this robe. <laughs> buckle <laughs> okay. up your robes, right. you guys. Here we go. <laughs> I'm ready. Alyssa, the story yes. I am about to tell you is true. It's a story which means many different things to many different people. It's a tale of highs and lows, redemption and also loss, physical triumph and psychological downfall. It examines the fragile balance of leadership and friendship and the role faith plays in man's will to survive. But most of all, it's a story about the greatest power mankind has, the power of choice. Oh, oh free! is this about free will? It's Thursday, okay. October 12th, 1972. Do you have any idea where I'm going with the story? No, I don't. Okay, great. Keep that in mind. Members of the amateur Old Christians Club rugby union team from Montevideo, Uruguay are very excited. 
They're scheduled to play a match against the Old Boys Club, an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile. Club president Daniel Juan charters the plane to fly his team over the Andes mountain range to Santiago. There are 45 people with the Old Christians Club rugby team set to fly to Santiago. It's expensive to fly 45 people commercially, so club president Daniel Juan opted for the cheapest option. No. Wait, this is an airplane story. Natalia, how dare you? (laughs) He charters an Air Force plane across the Andes Mountains. No. It is an airplane story. But it's also all those other things. What about the love and redemption and the tale of mankind, okay? I'm sweating. Now I'm thinking about being in an airplane and I'm freaking out. Okay, go ahead. The plane is Uruguayan Air Force twin turboprop Fairchild FH-227D, which is carrying 40 passengers and five crew members. The pilot is Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas. He's an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagurada. There are 10 extra seats, and the team members invited a few friends and family members to accompany them. When someone canceled at the last minute, Graziella Mariana bought the seat so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. The spirits are high. The team is elated. They are about to embark on a fun weekend trip to play their favorite sport, surrounded by friends and family. What they don't know is that the plane they are on flying has a nickname. It's called the Lead Sled due to its heavy weight and low engine power. Additionally, why would you ever go ahead? Sorry, I'm just freaking out. (laughs) Additionally, the twin turboprop Fairchild FH-227D has a horrible safety record, but they don't know any of that. Oh, actually, let me wait. Let me send you some photos first. Hold on. Okay. Okay. There's the plane. Do you want to go ahead and describe the plane to everybody? Yes. So if you guys want to follow along with the photos from this episode, you can go to our Instagram at Let's Get Haunted. We post photo dumps for every episode. I'm looking at the first photo here. It, yeah, it looks like a missile. I'm going to be honest with you. It looks like a really heavy missile. It doesn't look like it could stay in the air at all. Right. Um, it's called Fuerza Airea Uruguaya. Um, and it has, yeah, it has like short wings. Mm -hmm. It looks like kind of a chode. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't look like it could fly at all. And the next photos I sent you are some photos of the rugby team. Do you want to go ahead and describe those? Yes. So the second photo I'm looking at is three guys. Oh, that's cute. Their uniforms are kind of cute. They have little shamrocks on Mm -hmm. their shirt. They definitely look like sporty rugby guys. Right. Um, it's three of them. And then if you go to the next photo, it's all of them on a plane. Is this a photo of them on the plane? Yeah. So that's or just on a plane. That's the plane. So that's a photo of the rugby team on the plane um, right before takeoff. Oh, my God. Oh. And then there's the whole rugby I mean, team. But ugh. these but these men's I mean they're rugby players, right? Like rugby players I think of all of the sports are like the biggest probably. They're kind of like American football linebackers. Everyone's really strong, they're thick or like hockey players. Right. It's one of those sports that's like really physical, so you have to have a lot of meat on you. Exactly. Yeah. They definitely have like a lot of muscle mass. Totally. So, the aircraft departs Thursday from Carrasco International Airport on October 12th. 1972 Thursday but a storm front over the Andes forces the team and its family friends to stop overnight in Mendoza Argentina 
Although there is a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago, which is about 120 miles to the west, the plane cannot make that high altitude of 25,000 feet because the aircraft, when fully loaded, is heavy. So this route would have required the pilot to really carefully calculate the fuel consumption and avoid the mountains. So instead, they decide to fly a longer 370-mile U-shaped route to avoid the highest peaks. The new route is 90 minutes and adds an extra day to their travel itinerary. Alyssa, do you know what day it is now? Uh, October 13th. Is it Friday the 13th? It is Friday, October 13th, 1972. Oh my God. When Andy's flight 572 takes to the skies one last time. The weather is still bad. Conditions over the Andes had not improved, but changes were expected by the early afternoon. So the pilot waited to take off from Mendoza until 2.18 p.m. on Friday, October the 13th. The plane is full of joy. Laughter permeates through the aircraft. The team is in a good mood, even tossing the rugby ball around the cabin. One of the players, Nando Parada, gives his window seat up to a teammate so his friend can enjoy the view of the mountains. Nando has no idea that this friendly gesture has just saved his life. This is a normal work day for pilot Ferradas. He has flown across the Andes 29 times previously, making this his 30th trip. But on this flight, he was training co-pilot La Gurara, who was the pilot in command. As they flew through the Andes, cloud cover obscured the mountains ahead. At an altitude of 18,000 feet, the pilots were relying on their instrument meteorological conditions as they could not visually confirm their location. Even though the flight time from their current location to the destination is normally 11 minutes, only three minutes later, La Gurara told Santiago that they were passing and turning north. He requested permission from the air traffic control to descend. The controller in Santiago, unaware that the flight was still over the Andes, authorized him to descend to 11,500 feet. Oh. So the pilots can't see anything because the weather is really bad. So they're relying on their instruments. Okay. And for some reason, they think they're 11 minutes further towards their destination than they are. Okay. So they believe that they've made it over the Andes mountain range and can start their descent down into the airport. But they're 11 minutes away. Okay. So in the cabin, the passengers began to shake. Severe turbulence tosses the lead sled around like a rugby ball. Several of the players joke about the turbulence and the spirits are still high. Nando feels the plane drop several hundred feet down. His buddy looks out the window and notices the plane has dropped beneath the cloud cover. Quote, that was probably the moment when the pilot saw the black ridge rising dead ahead. Do you have any idea what happened next Alyssa did they crash into the Andes mountains did they crash into something exactly so the mountains were right outside of the passenger windows like I want you to picture that you're flying in a plane and you've been in the clouds the entire time and it's been kind of crazy wind you can't see anything but other than that everything seems pretty normal and then all of a sudden the plane drops down a hundred feet and the clouds are now above you so you can see. And you see that there's mountains literally feet away from your windows. The mountains were right outside the passenger windows. The pilots had made a fatal mistake. 
They were 11 minutes away from the safe spot at which they were supposed to descend towards the airport. The plane and its 45 passengers had begun to descend into the middle of the longest continental mountain chain in the world. The pilot immediately recognizes his mistake and begins to climb until the plane is nearly vertical, but it was too late. The plane had begun to stall. The aircraft ground collision alarm sounds. The lighthearted atmosphere of Flight 572 changes as it becomes clear to all aboard that there will be no descent into an airport. The aircraft hits a ridge of the mountains, tearing off the tail of the plane and sends the entire remaining aircraft tumbling forward. When the tail cone was detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin, the galley, the baggage hold, vertical stabilizer, and horizontal stabilizers, leaving a gaping hole in the rear of the fuselage. Three passengers, the navigator and the steward, were lost in the tail section. Oh my God. One of the passengers, Carlos Valletta, survived his fall out of the back of the plane, but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, fell deep into snow, and was asphyxiated. The plane is still at nearly 14,000 feet above sea level, as it sandwiches between two more mountain peaks, which tear off both wings. One of the propellers slices through the fuselage as the wing it was attached to was severed. Two more passengers fall out of the open rear of the fuselage. Everyone in the back of the plane is dead. The remaining passengers and pilots are alive, but they're strapped to an aircraft with no wings and no propellers, hurtling at several hundred miles per hour directly towards the side of a mountain. The remaining fuselage crashes into a snowbank, ripping the seats from the floor and sending remaining passengers forward like dominoes. The impact of the plane into the snow crushes the cockpit and kills the experienced pilot Ferradas instantly. La Gurada is crushed in the cockpit but still alive as the fuselage slides down a steep slope at 220 mile per hour like a high speed toboggan for about 2,379 feet before colliding with a snowbank. The plane has finally stopped moving on a glacier so remote it does not even have a name. What do you think Alyssa? Ugh. You're in this plane. Yeah. And you've survived so far. The plane now comes to a stop and you look around and all you see is snow and mountains. I'm going to send you a photo of the Andes during the winter time so you can see what that looks like. Okay. Yeah. This You are describing a giant nightmare of mine. First of all, I hate being on planes as all of you learned last episode. I probably would have been so medicated on this flight that I wouldn't have known what was going on. So just imagining myself waking up in the middle of a mountain. Honestly, I would think I was already dead. I, that happens to me all the time where like something mildly traumatic happens and I'm just like, well, I died. This is like, this is like purgatory. That's what I would think. Right. Okay, so Natalia is sending me photos. So the Andes are one of the most popular ski resorts in um, South America that you can go to. So there's lots of pictures of people like skiing in the mountains. So I'm just sending you a photo of what mountains in that area look like if you want to describe that to people. Yeah, so I'm looking at a picture of three, four, excuse me, of four cross-country skiers it looks like. Um, yeah. 
And they are going up the side of a mountain in the Andes mountain range. It's super, like, first of all, tons of mountains, right? Like, there, it's mostly mountains, very few valleys. It's very rocky, lots of snow. It looks like it's rough terrain. That's mm-hmm. why they have to use these skis to get across. Um, and it looks like the snow is really deep. Like, right. if you were just to try to walk, it looks like you would just sink. Right. And, and they're dressed like they're explorers, you know? Like, this is not some place... Yeah. Like, I want to just emphasize that these people left the airport thinking that they were going on, like, a weekend trip with their buddies to go play rugby. Well, I'm looking at the photo that you sent me of them on the plane. And, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. They're just wearing, like, thin button-down shirts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, nobody's dressed for the snow. Nobody's dressed to go to the top of a 14,000-foot mountain range. No. So the top of Mammoth Mountain, which I think you've been to, right? Um, probably. I don't remember. I'm not a skier, so. I think it's like 11,000 feet. So like the top of like most mountains that humans go to, at least to ski where I know of, are are like not that high. They're not 14,000 feet. Right. Where the majority of people go. Like obviously if you go hella skiing or something like that, you can do whatever the fuck you want. But then this is not meant for you. This is, story is not meant right. to scare you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a friend that used to go hella um, snowboarding. Right. And yeah, they would like, I was like, does that not scare you? And he's like, no, you just get on the helicopter and they just drop you off in the middle of nowhere. It's like really rad. I was like, okay, cool. I would right. fucking die of a heart attack. I don't understand That's how, not that, rad to me. how that works because like a helicopter, where is it supposed to land? I don't know. Do you just drop out of the helicopter? It doesn't land. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't land. Right. So how do you get back in? Yeah, you have to, you have to snowboard down to the bottom. What if you go off the side of a cliff? Yeah, you literally die. I I asked so many questions when I found this out because uh, I was like, this seems like the most unsafe thing ever. He's like, yeah, you have to sign so many waivers saying like people do die every year, like doing these heli trips and like you have to have a guide with you. You have to do like you have to go through a certain number of hours of classes. Like it, if you fall into I don't remember all the terminology, but it's like all these different ways that you can die doing yeah. it. And I was like, this doesn't sound worth it. Yeah, like I'm a pretty good snowboarder. Like I, I can go down anything like the expert runs or whatever and I'll find myself getting stuck on like just like snow that's really deep there and it'll take me like 20 minutes to get out like if you go down the wrong path or something where the snow is not groomed and then you lose speed and you just fall and people die like that all the time so I can't imagine what it would be like to ski on terrain that's like literally ungroomed just powder everywhere like if you fuck up just a little bit you turn into like a snowball avalanche and like just suffocate as you're going yeah, down the mountain you just fucking die yeah, yeah. basically no, it's you. not chill is what i'm saying happened to these people no yes okay yeah. <laughs> so after the plane crashes the remaining survivors start to look around the plane and kind of see what the damage is done and turns out that 33 people were alive although most of them were seriously or critically injured with wounds including broken legs compound fractures and even some of the aircraft seats had collapsed forward in that like domino effect i was talking about and smashed into other bodies so this fuselage is full of like mangled corpses mangled half alive people and then people who are alive but freezing cold in these temperatures right now right nando parado the our guy that some of the story is told from his perspective like the guy that gave up his seat so he survived he's in a coma that lasts for three days right now so he's not even here 
And Enrico Platero has a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen and some of the survivors remove it. And when they remove it, it pulls out a few inches of his intestines with it. But (gasps) his adrenaline is so high that he just immediately starts helping others because he's still alive. You have people whose legs are like mangled, right? Yeah. And both of Arturo Nogurada's legs are broken in several places. None of the passengers with these compound fractures survive. And the pilot who survives, the guy that was training, he's trapped in the cockpit, mangled in there, and he can't get out. Oh, my God. And he asks one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him so that he can put him out of his misery. Oh, my God. But the passengers declined. So I just want to reiterate, this horrible plane crash has happened, and these people are surrounded by their friends and family. More than half of them are dead or injured so much that they're going to die, obviously. They're in freezing altitude. They're improperly dressed. It's so high that you can't hardly breathe when you go outside. And all they can do is wait for rescue and just try to stay alive as long as they can before they're found. Unfortunately, they're in a place so remote that it literally doesn't even have a name. This glacier where they landed was only named after this story came to light. It didn't it just it didn't even have a name before that because literally nobody goes there. Yeah, that's a bad sign. If you crash somewhere that doesn't have a name or you're stuck somewhere that doesn't have a name like I, I'm kind of on board with what that co-pilot tried to get people to do. Like, just fucking shoot me. Like, nobody is going to be able to find you. Right. One of the other things I really want to drive home is how cold it is. The first night that they spend in this fuselage is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, or that's negative 30 degrees Celsius. Oh, my God. So these remaining survivors huddle in the fuselage among the dead and the half dead for warmth and they try to block out the holes of the planes with a bunch of suitcases they believe a rescue operation is on the way so all they have to do is survive the night you know they're thinking like this traumatic experience has happened to me but literally all i have to do is survive this horribly brutally cold night and then someone's going to rescue right. us they're probably thinking you know that air traffic control knows exactly where they went down because of radar and so they're probably mm-hmm. like oh right. everyone is looking for us they know we didn't reach our destination they're going to start looking along the area that they knew we were flying and they're going to find us exactly unfortunately what they don't know is that the plane because it's white is camouflage against the snow so from above they can't be seen i'm going to send you a photo of what the fuselage looks like why okay this is a lesson right here if you own an airplane paint that shit bright red or rainbow or glitter like do something don't make it the same color as the surroundings of the area you're flying through that seems like an oversight like you're not in the military you don't need a camouflaged plane make that like have I don't know, make it have Nicolas Cage's face across the top. Like, (laughs) so this photo that I'm sending you is a photo of the fuselage up against the snow. Oh, God. And there's no way. Yeah. You can see how it just looks like a piece of the mountain. It does. Yeah. It's totally camouflaged. It's a black and white photo, granted. But yeah, you can tell that it's like a white and gray airplane and it's landed in an area where there's gray rocks and then white snow. So how would you ever be able to find it? Right. So this first night, five people die, including the co-pilot who asked them to kill him. And Nando is in a coma, and he doesn't realize that his mother and sister are dead and dying. And the sad thing is, is that they had only come on the trip because Nando was told that he could use the empty seats to take them both for free. 
Oh, God. Another thing that Nando doesn't know is that the search and rescue mission is impossible because not only is the plane camouflaged with the mountain, which makes the plane and survivors inside invisible, but also the radar had no idea where the plane was because they told them to descend 11 minutes away from where they actually thought they were. After the second night and third night happens, they realize that a search and rescue missions may take longer than they thought. So they have to start getting smart. Alyssa, what do you do after the first night that you thought you were going to get rescued from this situation happens? What would be your next like survival instinct to do? Um, I would say probably shelter and then water and then food. Exactly. That's exactly right. So for water, they use sheet metal from underneath the seats and they place snow on top of it. The solar corrector melts the snow and they drip it into empty bottles and they prevent snow blindness with sunglasses that they improvise using sun visors in the pilot's cabin, wire and a bra strap. They also remove the seat covers, which are partially made of wool, and they use them to keep warm like blankets. They use the seat cushions as snow shoes and Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumes leadership. So through all this chaos, he stands up and he's like, I'm the team captain. I'm going to continue to take leadership here. And he's like the moral support for everybody throughout this whole process. So Nando wakes up from his three-day coma and he learns that his 19-year-old sister was severely injured. And he attempts to keep her alive, but she dies in his arms on the eighth day. Oh, God. He is extremely distraught, obviously. And extremely sad because he knows that his sister and his mom are both dead because he brought them along on this trip. And he also gave his seat up to his friend who is now dead because he gave a seat up. And Nando says that he literally woke up in hell, you know, like he woke up feeling just so responsible for everything that had happened um, because his mother and his sister wouldn't be dead right now if he hadn't done that. And he like survived and he feels remorse over surviving when the people he loves had died. So the survivors find this small transistor radio, which is the first good news that they have. It's jammed between the seats on the aircraft, and they improvise this really long antenna, and they basically just bootleg it and get it to work, which is like the only good thing that's ever happened. Yeah, right? Like I would have never expected that to happen or work. And so then they turn on the radio, but bad news comes through the radio. What do you think happens, Alyssa? Are they, do they hear that nobody's looking for them or do they hear that like the search party's been called off or something? They hear the news that the search was canceled on their 11th day on the mountain. Oh my God. In the book Alive, the story of the Andes survivors, it describes the moments after this discovery. The others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, already knew what they had heard. Nicolique climbed through the hole in a wall of the suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. "'Hey, boys!' he shouted. "'There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They've called off the search.' Inside the crowded aircraft there was silence." As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Paez shouted angrily at Nicolique. Because it means, Nicolique said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. So, Alyssa, you're on this flight. 
You've survived this horrific plane crash. You've made it 11 days. You've watched your friends and family around you die. You have somehow survived. What do you do next? You're in the middle of nowhere in negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, surrounded by snow and ice, no vegetation, no water. What do you what do you start to do next? I mean, I guess what you would try to do is I mean, if you can't find a map and you're not really sure where you are, I guess you would try to send someone to like the top of a mountain to like flag down stuff or maybe you like write SOS in the snow in rocks so like hopefully someone flying over will see it like I'm not really sure what you do at that point if you're in the middle of nowhere on this glacier with no name and you're on the brink of death and you just heard that the search party's been called off like I don't I'm not really sure what options you would have left so they try that they write SOS across the plane but then when they realize that the search and rescue mission is um called off they stop using their supplies to write it because they realize there's no there's no point so they now they know that they're all gonna die unless they really start to um get smart about this so they start opening all of the luggage and they find eight chocolate bars a tin of mussels three small jars of jam a tin of almonds a few dates candies dried plums and several bottles of wine because remember this was supposed to be like a fun party trip right so they ration all of this out but it's not enough and for reference nando parado ate a single chocolate covered peanut over three days jesus the food runs out in over a week, and there's no natural vegetations. There's no animals on either the glacier or the nearby snow-covered mountain. And even with the strict rationing, their food stock dwindles really quickly. They ran out of food, like I said, after a week, and the group tries to eat parts of the airplane, like the cotton inside oh the God. seats and the leather, but they just got sicker from eating these. So now, Alyssa, you're really out of options. Uh, What's the next thing that you're going to do? You got to eat that guy's sister that died. You got to you got to eat the sister and the mom and all the friends that have died and Okay, I've thought about this, Natalia. You told a different story where people became cannibals because they were stranded somewhere. I think it was right. the HMS Terror episode. Yes. Okay, what if you just start chopping off people's body parts. That way, like, they're still alive, but, like, you can eat the meat. Is that is it's that a, a nice d- thought? It's a nice thought, but I feel like someone with a severed limb is more likely to die than someone yeah. with all okay. their limbs intact. You know, that makes sense now that I've said it aloud. <laughs> but I like where your head's at, right? So that's exactly what happens next. Nando tells a friend that he's going to eat the pilot. They and everyone is not down for this at first. (laughs) And obviously they're surrounded by their friends and family. I mean, they don't want to eat their friends and family. Right. No, I'm laughing not because the situation is funny, but because it's like, yeah, like I wouldn't be down either. Like that's (laughs) fucking terrible. But you have no choice. It's like, right. Yeah. So everyone kind of talks among each other and they lay out the facts. They're like, the search and rescue efforts have been called off. They're faced with starvation or death or both. And those alive agree that should they die, the others might consume their bodies in order to live. But what they don't want to do is eat someone who died that's their friend who didn't already give that permission. Right. That makes sense. They're dying. They have no choice. So eventually they make the decision to eat the pilots because they don't want to eat their friends. And they're like, 
probably just like fuck these pilots like this is their fault you know (laughs) hey that's true honestly like how are you a pilot and you don't know where you are like while you're doing your job that's your job right I don't want to put blame on anyone I'm just saying the mentality of like if you're in this situation and you don't know these guys and you like put your whole life in their hands and then they don't deliver yeah I'd I'd probably eat them too (laughs) (laughs) So survivor Roberto Canessa describes the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members. Quote, our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital, life-giving protein that would help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going to go mad to even contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear. So the group collectively decides to feast on the dead. They survive by eating the flesh of the bodies of their dead comrades. The decision was not taken lightly, as most of the deads, like I said, were classmates, close friends, or relatives. Canessa used the broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Several others did the same later on. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered them, but few refused or could not keep it down. There was just one person who refused to eat the meat throughout the rest of this process. The one thing that they do decide, Nando says that my sister and my mother are off limits. So the rest of the team tries to prioritize eating males and men Uh and people they didn't know that well. And they don't eat any of the females or the children or they try to. Okay. So also to make matters worse... Most of the passengers are Roman Catholic, and some feared eternal damnation from being cannibals or eating their friends. According to Reed, some rationalized that the act of necrotic cannibalism was equivalent to the Eucharist, or the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, under the appearances of bread and wine. Others justified it according to a Bible verse found in John fifteen thirteen, which says, No man hath greater love than this that he lay down his life for his friends. So they start talking about this and they're trying to reason with it. And they're like, either we're going to die or we're, we have to eat our friends. So like, what is the worst? What is worse? Is it, is it like more of a sin for us to give up if there's an option to survive? Or is it a sin to eat you know, our fallen friends and they're really like in this predicament and they come up with the idea that like actually, you know, if you really think about it, this is like the body and the blood of Christ at church. So in its own way, this is sort of similar, which I don't really understand that. (laughs) Like I would eat the people to survive just because that's what I'm going to do, especially if my friends are doing it. But I don't really understand that. But I guess if you're super, super religious, like you have to come up with something to make yourself feel better. Yeah. You have to, like, do the mental gymnastics to justify 
uh, eating a, a person, right? right? Yeah, I mean, I it, it does make sense because if you think about it, like you said, from a super religious perspective, uh, then you believe that Christ laid his life down so that others may live. And yes. that is forever symbolized um, in taking communion, which is uh, breaking bread, which represents his flesh, and drinking wine, which represents his blood. So then... I can totally see how they would like use that to say, okay, well, now our friends are laying down their lives for us Mm -hmm. and we are just literally eating their flesh in the same way that Christ laid down his life and we metaphorically eat his flesh every Sunday. Right. Okay. Well, that's way deeper. I didn't think of it that way. I was just like, yeah, that's that makes sense. Christ laid down his life for us. Our friends are laying down their life for us. Right. We'll eat them. Okay. Yeah. So... They eat the pilots first, and then they have to start eating other bodies. And then on day 17, disaster struck again. Alyssa, what do you think happened on day 17? God, what could possibly be worse? I'm going to say maybe like an avalanche or a blizzard because there's literally nothing. Or an alien. (laughs) An alien came down. (laughs) No, I don't know. I'm going to say an avalanche or a blizzard. Okay. Well, here's what happened. In the middle of the night, on the 17th night, they hear the sound of wild horses stamping towards them. What? But it's not horses. It's the sound of a huge avalanche carrying thousands of pounds of snow down the mountain towards the plain. I knew it. The snow bursts through the hole in the plain and buries everyone alive inside. Eight more people die in the avalanche, including their team leader. The survivors used their arms to dig out of the avalanche for air. The avalanche completely buried the fuselage and filled the interior of the plane just within three feet, three inches of the roof or one meter. The survivors trapped inside soon realized that they were running out of air after days of being stuck in the plane. Nando Parado found a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing ventilation. With considerable difficulty, on the morning of the 31st of October, Halloween, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface, only to encounter a furious blizzard that left them no choice but to stay inside the fuselage, buried in snow with the corpses of their friends and family who had died nights before. Good lord. For three days, the survivors were trapped in the extremely cramped space. There's only three feet above you. They had no other choice. So on the third day, trapped inside the fuselage, they began to eat their newly dead friends that were around them. With Perez dead, the captain, cousins Eduardo and Fito Strouch and Daniel Fernandez assumed leadership. They took over harvesting flesh from their deceased friends and distributed it to the others. Alyssa, as I've said before, you're on this flight. You've now survived Mm -hmm. a horrible plane crash, being stuck on a mountain and freezing weather, cannibalizing your friends. Also, an avalanche that took out the remaining of your friends, except for a few of your teammates. Now, what is your next move? You're stuck in this fuselage full of snow. There's a blizzard outside. You got three feet to move around in. What do you do next? Well, yeah, you've got to, I mean, I guess something that is interesting to me is that it sounds like they don't have the ability to make a fire. So they're just eating literal like 
sushi human flesh, like raw flesh. That's right. so gnarly. That is right. so fucking gnarly. Yeah, you just have to start eating your friends and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you've got to wait out the blizzard, right? That's your only yeah, chance of survival. You can't go out there in the blizzard. They already tried that. So yeah, you just have to like stay inside and eat all your friends and I don't know. That's just and like just crazy. Wait for weather to let up. Yeah, yeah, you have to, right? Right. So now they're thinking exactly that. Like we have to escape this hellhole because no one's gonna ever find us here, and we only have so many bodies to eat. And what's the point? Like we're just staying alive just to stay alive, you know? Right. Like, there's no exit strategy. They try to start taking treks to see where they are because the pilot said that they were only three minutes away from their descent and they started the descent. So they're, obviously they're like, well, that was wrong because we crashed. But some of them are thinking they can't be that far away from right. where they need to be. So there was some cigarettes along with a bunch of that, like wine and stuff like that. And they have tons of cigarettes. So they start smoking cigarettes and they're using their snowshoes that are made from the seats and the sunglasses that they handmade themselves. And they go out on these little treks and they find the tail end of the plane where, great news, there's a little bit of food left in it. Oh, awesome. Numa, Antonio, and Canessa and Parado, it's a group of four men. They start going out on these treks out alone. And so everyone who's in the fuselage gives them the largest rations of food and the warmest clothes. They spare them from doing any manual labor around the crash site. That's essential for the group's survival, just so that those four people can have their strength. And they're the ones that are going to go out and trek and look around. And so they go up to the top of this mountain and they find the tail end of the plane. And inside the tail end of the plane, they find luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little bit of medicine. They also find the aircraft's two-way radio. And the group decides to camp that night inside the tail section. And they stay up late reading comic books. So they're having a good time now, for, like, okay. when you compare it to before. Right. It's better than, like, eating frozen human sushi and, like, yeah, anything right. is better than that. Anything yeah. is better than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then the next morning, they continue on their path looking for wherever the plane is supposed to descend from. But on the second night, which is their first night sleeping outside, because now they don't have the tail end of the plane, they all nearly froze to death. They debate okay. amongst themselves. They're fighting. They don't know what the next move is. They're like, do we keep going forward where we're surely going to die because we almost froze to death last night? Or do we go back and tell people that we found the the tail end what do we do they decide that it's wiser to return to the tail remove the aircraft's batteries and bring them back to the fuselage so that they can power up the radio and make an sos call to santiago for help oh amazing but guess what oh no yes it doesn't work the radio is inoperative <laughs> so oh. Alyssa, you've survived this plane crash you've survived eating your friends you've survived an avalanche you've now survived going out on this trek and finding the tail end of the plane and sleeping outside and now you decide you have to go back to the fuselage so what do you do next well first of all if you've already made the decision to make it this far you can't give up 
Like you, if Love you've that. already eaten your friends, if you've already like been just living in the worst conditions possible and you have managed to survive, you have to keep trying to survive. So I guess, yeah, you go back. Man, they really couldn't get the radio to start up. I feel like you have that's like the thing you have to do because if the search party has been called off and you've already established that you're not as close to your destination as you originally thought you were, then you have to get that radio working. Like you have to figure right. out something or start the, a fire. Smoke the batteries signals. were incompatible yeah. with the actual like so it was never it was doomed from the beginning. The batteries were yeah. the wrong kind of batteries for it. God. Yeah, I feel like you have to find some way to get into contact with the outside world. So that night when they come back, three more died due to gangrene. And Numa Turkati, who wouldn't eat any of the human flesh, died on day 60 from starvation. He weighed wow. only 55 pounds when he died. So what a badass, though, for making it that long with no food. I know. Like, how could you watch all these people around you? I guess he was just thinking, like, they're going to solve this problem for me. So yeah. they need a sleeping bag. One of the teammates creates a sleeping bag for them made from insulation in the rear of the fuselage, a copper wire and waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane. He makes a sleeping bag for the men. And then the men are like, OK, we're going to climb up over this ridge that's in front of us and we're going to use this sleeping bag because it's going to take multiple days to do that and we know that we'll die if we if we sleep outside so i'm going to send you a picture of this mountain face that the these men are going to climb up okay let me look so this is the mountain the mountain face that they had to climb up yeah no i'm not making it up there <laughs> i mean like here's the thing i feel like we've talked about this before when you are put when the human when a human being is put under like extreme conditions and your adrenaline kicks in and your will to survive kicks in, I don't think any of us can imagine like the drive to survive and what you'd be willing to do if you were in this situation. So right. just looking at this, to me, this looks like no fucking way. It's it's pretty steep. It looks like there's not much stuff to grab onto. It's super snowy. I don't think I could get up there. But then again, if I were in the right circumstances and that was my only option, who knows what you or I would be capable of. Right. And I think because they're with four, like it's four of them and they're all rugby players and they're like all this like team attitude. Maybe they're just hyping each other up, you know, and they're like, hey, man, right. we're going to like get out of here together. We're going to do this. We've already survived. We have God on our side. You know, like what are the odds that we've survived this long? Like there's got to be some God-given reason that we right. have been spared. No, that's so, a good point. I mean, like you said, maybe they started at an advantage because they were already teammates, like you said. So mm -hmm. they're used to working together in a team. They're not strangers. So hopefully they're not like bickering or like have distrust or like, oh, I don't agree with that guy's opinion. Like they already have to work together all the time on the rugby field. So maybe that puts them at an advantage. Totally. So on December 12th, 1972, those four guys lacking any mountaineering gear of any kind began to climb a glacier at 11,000 feet to 15,000 feet, Jeez. which is a peak that's blocking their way west. And they think that when they get over the top of this peak, they're going to see this giant descent down into a valley, and there's going to be a city on the other side, and they're going to be golden. So it takes them 
three fucking days to get up this giant glacier. And meanwhile, everyone at the fuselage is just watching them because they can see oh, them. Oh, they can see out them? The, yeah, the whole time. Oh, they can that's see them. crazy. Because so they're doing this without any mountaineering equipment. So it takes them forever. The snow is super deep. You know, they're right. wearing cushions on their feet. Parado is wearing three pairs of jeans and three sweaters over a polo shirt. He's wearing four pairs of socks wrapped in a plastic shopping bag. They have no technical gear, no map, no compass, no climbing experience. And so they think that they're going to reach the peak in one day. Because I don't know if you've ever been to like a huge landscape. You're like, oh, that can't be that far. Well, you ran cross country. You see something in the distance and you're like, that's not that fucking far. Well, then you start running to it and you're like, where the fuck is that? thing no straight up when I I went yeah when I went to Iceland uh we decided to go like do our own exploring in this like glacier area and Uh we were like oh I bet you we can like get up to the top (laughs) of that thing like let's just go do it like such a cool picture and then we were walking for like an hour and a half and we were like no we're not gonna get there (laughs) yeah so I mean that's what they thought they see the top of this peak and they're like oh it's right there a bunch of snow we just walk up to the top of it bing bang boom we're done But that's not what happened. The snow was up to their hips and they're walking in hip deep snow and there's barely any oxygen. It's really thin. It's really difficult for them to breathe. They can only take like one step every minute when they have to rest and breathe and wait. And the summer sun is beginning to happen. So now the snow is super soft and it's wet. And obviously when you get wet and it's freezing temperatures at night, that's a deadly combination. Right. So it's still obviously bitterly cold, but the sleeping bag that they're staying in together at night is the only reason that they can survive this three-day trek. And then on the first night of their ascent up, they had a really difficult time finding a place to put the sleeping bag down because it's a, literally just a rock face or straight right. up a cliff going up, right? So they finally find a place and then a fucking storm starts up. It blows all over them and it's like they think they're going to die, obviously, yeah. on this cliff ledge in this sleeping bag with, you know, just a bunch of t-shirts on in a place that most people are wearing thousands of dollars worth of mountaineering equipment. And Kinesa says on that night, it was the worst night of his life. He thought that the climb was really slow. And on the second day, Kinesa saw thought that he saw a road to the east and he tried to persuade Perrado to head in that direction but Perrado disagreed and then they argued without reaching a decision and on the third morning of the trek Knessa stayed at their camp he's like fed up with this because he's like I just saw a road we need to take that and Perrado and the other guy are like no we need to keep going this way so they had an argument over which way to go and then Knessa's like well I'm you guys are heading to your certain death right now I'm staying at the camp why don't you go risk your lives go see that you'll see that it's not what you thought it is and then come back to me got it so Perrado was determined to hike out of that like valley or die trying He used a stick from his pack to carve steps in the wall. He gained the summit of 15,000 feet high before Vincentin, thinking that he would see the green valleys of Chile to the west, but he was stunned. When he got to the top of the peak, he just sees a fuck ton more of mountains going on in every direction indefinitely. No. They had only climbed to a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning that the trekkers were still tens of kilometers from the green valleys of Chile. Vincentin and Parado, the two guys that went up without Canessa, they went back down to Canessa and they were obviously like, okay, we're fucked. And Canessa's like, 
told you so. And then that <laughs> night, they start sipping some of the liquor that they found in the tail section. And Parado says, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? Which meaning he's saying, like, look at this place that we're in. Like, this is like the most beautiful scenery. And like, wouldn't this just be just a totally different experience if we had the clothes that we needed, you know, and this wasn't like a survival. Right. A survival trip. So, Alyssa, what do you do? You've survived all that other shit that I told you about before. Now you get in your man-made sleeping bag with your three male friends and you climb to the top of this mountain <laughs> and you realize that it's not what you thought it was. Now, what what do you do next? I guess you would try going the other direction. The guy that said he saw the road. I mean, I guess that's what you try to do now. It's either that or you go back down to the fuselage. So which we've already established is like just waiting for your death. That's exactly what happened. Or like we need to hike up out of here. Like we're going to either die trying or we're going to die at the fuselage. What do you want to do? And Vincent is like, no, fuck this. I'm going back down to the fuselage. He finds an aircraft seat that has a person in it who died. And he uses that as a makeshift sleigh. And he just slides down the entire mountain. It takes him like 15 minutes to get back to the fuselage. (laughs) He's like, fuck you guys. I'm out. So now. Did he take the dead guy out of the chair first? Or is it he is he sitting on the lap of a dead guy like slaying down? It doesn't say, but I like to think that he took the dead guy out. Yeah. Hopefully. Now the two guys that are left. Pareto says to Canessa, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Canessa agrees. You and I are friends, Nando. We've been through so much. Now let's go die together. And they follow the ridge towards Hell the yeah. valley. I love that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Hell so, yeah. I love isn't that. Isn't that the coolest shit? Alyssa, now you're hiking into your death with your best friend. What are you hoping for? Or what do you think is the only outcome that that good that can come from this? I think you have to just hope that Kinesa was correct when he said that he saw a road and that hopefully hiking in that opposite direction will lead you to some form of civilization, or at least you should be able to see it in the distance and then you know where you are. Right. Well, that's exactly what happened, sort of. Parado and Kinesa hiked for several more days. Mind you, they have no equipment on them and they're hiking for days. There's crevasses everywhere. There's cliffs everywhere. It's hip deep snow. You can fall into a like a literal hole in the ground and die forever or be trapped down in there. Right. So after several days of hiking, they reach the narrow valley that Parado had seen on top of the, the mountain and they follow it to a river. They see water for the first time and they know that they are going to survive. Because now now they have water. They start to see more and more signs of human presence. First, some evidence of camping. And then finally, on the ninth day, they found some cows. When they rested that evening, they were super tired. And Canessa seemed unable to proceed any further. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river. Parado called to them, but the noise of the river flowing made it impossible to communicate. No. One of the men across the river saw Parado and Canessa and called back, tomorrow. The next day, the same man returned. He scribbled a note, attached it and a pencil to a rock with some string, and then threw the message across the river. And I'm going to send you what this said so you can read it. 
All right, Alyssa, because I know you speak Spanish, I sent it to you. This is the original note. It's in Spanish. Would you like to read it in Spanish and then translate sure. it for us? Absolutely. So it says, Vengo de un avión que cayó en las montañas. Soy uruguayo. Hace diez días que estamos caminando. Tengo un amigo herido arriba. En el avión quedan 14 personas heridas. Tenemos que salir rápido de aquí y no sabemos cómo. No tenemos comida. Estamos débiles. ¿Cuándo nos van a buscar arriba? Por favor, no podemos ni caminar. ¿Dónde estamos? So this says, I come from an airplane that fell in the mountains. I am from Uruguay. About 10, oh, it says 10 days ago, we have, oh, for 10 days we have been walking. I have a friend who is hurt uh, above. In the plane, we have 14 more injured people. We have to leave quickly from here and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come look for us? Uh, please, we can't even walk. Where are we? That is exactly right. So the guy who reads this is like, holy shit, because like two months ago, th this was all over the news, right? Like this plane went down right. in the Andes. We lost this whole rugby team. Super sad. And meanwhile, all these people who live in that area are probably like, oh, yeah, that's like we're literally right over there. That's crazy. And now he's finding out that not only are all these people alive, but like they've hiked for 10 fucking days just wearing a bunch of T-shirts and a bunch of pants and like cushions on their feet. You know, like, it's amazing. Jesus. He's stunned. So he reads the note and he gives him a sign that he understood. And then he literally, like, he's, like, hours and hours away from mankind. Well, he gets back on his horse and he rides westward for 10 hours straight to bring help to these men. Jeez. So basically he goes through, Sergio is like the man because he finds this out and he rides for fucking 10 hours on horseback. He goes and he f finds the fucking army to help these guys. And then they bring two helicopters to the crash site and are able to rescue these men. And I'm going to send you some photos of what the uh, rescue team saw and took pictures of when they got here. Okay. The first photo that I sent to you actually is a photo of the note that they sent across the water that had that beautiful translation that you just read for us. Okay. So, yes, I see the note. It's super like smudged I mean he's writing this is just incredible that he was even able to write like I'm imagining right. frostbitten hands there's snow there's water there's a river like the fact that this note even made it across the river and then back without like completely disintegrating like or falling yeah. in the river is incredible right the next picture is a picture of Sergio the guy that was on horseback with the two guys and right you can just tell by looking at them, see how many clothes they're wearing and look how skinny they are compared to that photo from the beginning of those big yeah. rugby men. They look so defeated. But beards and they long just look hair. like honestly, they look like very hipstery to me I in know. this photo. Like skinny, skinny LA boys. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when I saw this, is I was like, was this taken like a few months after this all happened? Because they just look really cool to me. You know, they look yeah. like they're in a band or something. They're wearing like those makeshift sunglasses and like they have a bunch of clothes on. They just look skinny and cool, you know? <laughs> but right. no, actually there were just hiking for 10 days without food or water. Yeah, that's insane. And then, of course, the guy that rescued them is looking super fucking proud. He's like got his hand on his hip. He's pointing to something. He's like, yeah, I fucking did that. Like, yeah, I'm he's the like, man. I found this shit. Yeah, yeah. right? 
The yeah. next photo is a photo of the survivors inside the fuselage, huddled in the fuselage. Yeah. So I'm looking at a picture. It's one, two, three, four, five, six dudes. And yeah, they're huddled together for warmth. Now, what's interesting about this photo is that some of them are like attempting to smile because they know their picture is being taken. But you can tell like <laughs> they're just like, come on, guys, like take us to a hospital. We have been right. living a nightmare. Like, please just get us out of here. We don't want to pose for this photo. And th- this is in the summer when they first landed it was winter right so now the summer has melted the snow that was in the fuselage away from the avalanche and like it's a lot warmer and they still look fucking miserable the next photo is a photo of the fuselage and like the little camp that they made around the fuselage right yeah it just it's just plane wreckage it's plane wreckage and luggage wreckage and like pieces of airplane and pieces of chair yeah it's pretty gnarly looking And the next photo is a photo of the clothes that Nando was wearing and the boots that he was wearing when he hiked across for 10 days to the Andes. Yeah, these are like very thin, like leather shoes that are like clearly more for fashion than function. And he fucking climbed a mountain for 10 days in this shit. Insane. And then the next photo is a photo of the makeshift sunglasses they used for snow blindness. Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty impressive, all of the stuff that they did to survive and, like, all the shit that they MacGyvered together to be able to survive. It's it's crazy. You guys need to go to at Let's Get Haunted and look at these photos. This shit's insane. So, after these men are rescued, this is, like, huge global news. This is amazing, you know? And everyone's like, oh, my God, how did they do that? And then it kind of gets to the point where people are like, well, wait, how did they get to do that? And then people start thinking there's some suspicions that maybe there was some cannibalism. Well, yeah. But no one really wanted to believe that. And then what happens is some photos that the rescuers took surface and you can see the corpses had been partially eaten. Uh And now rumors are flying and people are not happy about this. Honest, oh, fuck off. Fuck off, members of the public. You don't know what you would do in a situation like that until you're in that situation. Like, maybe you right. think, oh, I wouldn't eat the bodies. I would, you know, j- die, you know, freezing cold 50 pounds like that one guy did. But the majority of us would not do that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that was my thought, too. And that's what that's what the survivors said. They were like, what would you have done? Yeah. You know, we did. it was hard for us. For many days, we starved because we didn't know what else to do and this was not easy for us and when they described how hard it was for them and how they had really thought about this bible verse and they had thought about the sacrifice that christ had made so that they could live and they really modeled their own survival story off of that then people were like okay i guess you're roman catholic enough for us like oh my god maybe it's not too bad (laughs) and so also some of the people some of the people even gave permission like they knew they were dying and they were like hey you can eat my arm like it's chill I don't need it in the afterlife right so then a Catholic priest hears their survivors confessions and he tells them that they're not condemned for their human flesh eating giving given the extreme nature of their survival situation and so then everyone's like okay actually it's fine (laughs) so the legacy that this this whole story leaves behind is kind of amazing because people are just so taken back by this story of survival right. and these people shouldn't have survived. It's incredible. And so in 2006, 
the families of those on board the flight had this big monument built at the crash site memorializing those who lived and died. Also, the glacier was named like the Glacier of Tears after this horrible incident so the glacier got a name there's a crash site described in the andes museum and people have now in like a tribute to these survivors and also in just a way to see like could i do this go on these treks where they follow the exact route that the men took to escape from the fuselage so the last photo that i sent is um Mm. a picture of some hikers who are camped out and they're making their descent or ascent and descent And they, people who followed this, like, this is fucking nuts. So basically I found this website called alpineexpeditions.net. You guys should all go check it out because it's insane. And this guy followed their entire path that they took. And he did it all with mountaineering equipment and with like the proper clothing and devices. And he said, overall, we felt that what Nando and Roberto accomplished in 72 was incredible. A miracle, not in my personal opinion, but one of the finest moments in human history when two young men against all odds and showing incredible bravery defied the cruel environment and challenges of the mountains and accomplished an unbelievable feat. And with that, saved their own lives as well as the lives of 14 mates stuck in the plane. The escape and the troubles and challenges faced and overcome by the 16 Andes survivors always has and always will continue to inspire me and will always speak volumes of the incredible thing called the human spirit. Incredible. So, Alyssa, what do you do now? You survived this uh, crash. You were picked up uh, two months later after surviving. There was a media scandal when people found out that you ate your friends, but then actually it turned out to be fine. Now, what's your next move? get some really intensive therapy like the amount of trauma (laughs) these guys must have like jesus christ like going through that whole experience i would first of all i would never fly in a plane ever again i'd be like god gave me a second chance i am staying on the ground i will be taking trains everywhere and yeah i would get some therapy but since this is the 70s i don't think therapy was very accepted back then so i guess you just like move on with your life the best you can like start a family maybe like give talks maybe become an inspirational like a motivational speaker i don't know so there's two things there's like basically two options that the survivors took some of them never spoke about it again obviously super traumatic they don't want to relive that some of them wrote books and biographies about it and that's where we get a lot of our information uh from through the eyes of these survivors who wrote books about it and there was even a movie called Alive in from 1993 that I've actually seen that's pretty good. Oh, that's really? literally about this. Yeah. So if you guys want to see a pretty good movie that's about some crazy shit, the 1993 movie called Alive with an exclamation point at the end of it is about this. And I thought it was fascinating. Super so Alyssa, I would say, like, let's think about the theories. But to me, there's only one theory. This is fucking Oct- Friday the 13th. Yes. Like, this is that. That's just what it is to me. I don't know what else it would be. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's it's a series of unfortunate events that happened on haunted ass days. A lot of haunted shit right. happened. But overall, like, they persevered. They, and they turned it into a positive fucking haunting. You know what I mean? Like, right. they took the <laughs> shitty hand they'd been dealt and they were like, all right. 
we can either sit here and cry about it or we can go fucking do something about it and we can get ourselves out of this shitty haunted situation and that's exactly what they did and Mm -hmm. fuck yeah like good for them they they did it against all odds like that's incredible yeah honestly this story is there's there's so much more to it i mean our podcast isn't long enough for me to go into all the details i just chose what i thought was like the most inspiring so you guys should definitely check this out when you get a chance because like one of the other crazy things is when they were discovered the bodies of the deceased a lot of the families wanted to give them a proper burial but it wasn't possible because the altitude was so high and it would just be too hard to get the bodies down at the time and so they took all these bodies and put them in like this mass grave which they then set on fire and they lit the fuselage on fire and they like set a prayer over it but one of the men wanted to get his son's body and so he made a deal with this priest to mark his son's bodies and put it in a bag and set it aside for him and then he came back later did an expedition found the body and brought it back but then he was arrested for grave robbing are you shitting me but then a federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release and he got legal permission to bury his son so that's the one time that something good that like that makes me very angry like (laughs) you lost your son in this horrific manner if you know what if you that's fucking stupid government get out of people's (laughs) lives that's what i have to say about that like if you want to bury your son in a in a religious ceremony that's your fucking right so fuck whoever arrested that guy would you donate your body to your friends to eat after your death or would you be like, don't touch it? No, I think I probably would. Because if you know you're going to die, I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, like the last heroic act or the last selfless act you can do so that your life and your death had meaning is to hopefully, you know, sacrifice yourself so that others can survive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I thought about it. I was like, maybe I should donate my body to science. But then I'm like, well, what kind of science is it? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if I get to choose what kind of science it is, that's fine. But I would be super pissed if I donated my body to science and they just like injected it full of like as much silicone as possible. And we're like, how much like plastic surgery can a human body take? You know, <laughs> it's or so funny. Like that. It's so funny you say that because I'm actually reading a book about what happens to bodies that have been donated to science right like you can be made into that stupid traveling display that's like our bodies that i've been to several times because i'm fucked up yeah no okay so this book is called stiff the curious lives of human cadavers by mary roach i'm not very far through it i'm like maybe an eighth of of the way through it but she writes about um like she decided to look into what happens to all these bodies after death and the very first chapter is like she shows up to a plastic surgery convention and they have human cadaver heads that have been donated to science and the instructor is teaching how to do facelifts and so they're practicing on these like decapitated heads it's literally like decapitated heads on a platter and they just have a napkin over the head and then when it's time to start practicing they take take the napkin off but she she's not saying like it's bad or good she's just like this is what happens and like it does help contribute to science we learn new techniques and plastic surgery isn't just for vanity it's like people have horrible disfiguring accidents and like it's well obviously no one should like even if you just want to get you know your face done or your boobs done or whatever like you shouldn't die during that because like doctors don't know how to do it but my personal thing is i would rather my body like cure aids or something yeah (laughs) i just totally like 
I'm already dead. Just like let me have like the most death clout I can have, okay? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So like, yes, I think if I knew that I was dying, there was no way out. I would say, okay, when I die, you guys can like eat me because that's that's death clout, right? Like you at right. least die knowing that you're doing something good for other people and that that is the legacy you're leaving behind. If you say don't eat me, then you're forever the person that died and like someone else died because you wouldn't sacrifice yourself yeah 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 what a story what a story incredible great story natalia i really enjoyed it it's definitely combined a lot of fears of mine for sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah i thought it was a good follow-up to the plane story you told last week haunted as shit absolutely yeah don't fuck with friday the 13th that's that's what i'm gonna say if there's one thing that we learn from this don't fuck with friday the 13th absolutely All right, Alyssa, do you want to do our sign off? Yes. Um, BRB, gotta go make some sunglasses out of bra straps. Oh, well, okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. My sources for today's episode were sunshinecoastdaily.com, Wikipedia, a YouTube video by The Infographics Show, The Washington Post, NPR.org, 